Welcome to the Get Prepared Podcast, where we teach you how to future-proof your skills and become a lifelong learner. Perfect. I'm here today with Amir Bozorzadeh from Virtual Leap. Um, Amir is a serial entrepreneur, and he's joining us today to talk to us about his journey to moving from Canada to Dubai to the Netherlands to now Lisboa. Amir, welcome. Thank you so much, Salah. Amir, I want to start off, maybe if you can tell us about your first recollection of your, your urge to, to solve a, a problem, the earliest memory that you have, if you can, if you can talk to us about that, that would be great. Mm. I think, the, yeah, the first one that comes to mind right now is jumping back to 2010. <clears throat> um, I, had, uh, I had participated in my first uh, TEDx uh, conference, which is just around the time that it, you know, Ted first, uh, created that, that, um, I guess distributed version of itself and all sorts of countries were and cities were creating their own TEDx conferences. And I volunteered and got all inspired, um, from that, from the, from the, you know, the whole experience of it that I went about and, um, started thinking about how to, have an impact in my own locality, which was um, at the time Dubai, a very uh, incoherent uh, cultural place. You know, a lot of it's a melting pot of a lot of cultures that don't really jive very well. And myself and a couple of co-founders, we created um, the first time bank um, in the Middle East. A time bank is basically like a, a way to um, incentivize a community to help each other. So like if you... Um, spend one hour helping your neighbor with a particular skill set, like teaching them how to play the guitar, you earn in this central bank of time, like this one hour that you can use and spend by having someone else in the community help you with something, you know? So it was like a skill sharing platform that I had launched and it was really all about, uh, you know, pursuing the idea of making a more coherent community um, where people care more about things, uh, intangible things like social capital. That's amazing. Now, you know, as you went through that process, tell us about, you know, some of the trials and tribulations that you face in creating your, your first iteration. And uh, at what point did you and your team decide, you know, to add additional features or, you know, to continue or to stop that project? Um, yeah, like, you know, when it came to the, the technical aspects, uh, we had initially gone into looking at the traditional way of, you know, figuring out what talent we needed to come on board and develop what type of platform. And, you know, um, luckily we had avoided um, a, lot of the, a lot of the work on that side by finding um, a time bank uh, platform provider, if you can believe it, um, that basically uh, they would offer like the whole a to Z platform that allows you to just get up and going, um, get up and running really fast by licensing it from them. Um, so we were able to avoid uh, getting, um, you know, developers and, and, and technical talent. Um, and then the problem really became a, a one of focus on seeing how adoption would would take place in, in a in a in an economy and culture like Dubai. 
um, where where initially we were we were receiving a lot of traction with the media. The newspaper loved us. Um, we got our initial 400 members in a matter of I think three days, which was great. Um, but then we hit this ceiling, and the ceiling we didn't really understand. Um, you know, there was a, a certain small fraction of the population that were interested in the idea and the philosophy of, of sharing time and weaving the community together um, through this type of platform. But um, we found that in a place like Dubai, there was a ceiling in terms of some of the cultures just didn't find it interesting to, to mix with other cultures. It was like a real inexorable in, in, in um, barrier that... that However much we tried to campaign and go to events and, and, and preach the gospel, so to speak, um, the, the local communities just didn't really like the idea. They liked to be cloistered and they liked to be separated. So um, we eventually disbanded the whole project by um, um, handing it over to the government, um, which accepted it and, and, and turned it into something else. But uh, it, was a, it was a hell of a ride um, as, wow. as our first social impact project. That's amazing. You know, not many people would think to go and seek a, a pre-built solution, license it, and go aggressively into testing mode. Um, Amir, how did how do you feel your education kind of prepared you for that moment of of tackling problems like this to be able to get to that commercialization stage? Uh, quickly or realize, you know, um, there is a ceiling, in fact, and maybe this is not something that you can commercialize and the better route is to give it to the government. Can you talk to me about, uh, you know, your journey from an education perspective and how that supported your ability to be able to make these types of decisions so quickly? Yeah, I mean, it was so early on in, in um, my entrepreneurial days that you know, and, and I was lucky and fortunate to have two co-founders with pretty complementary skill sets. Um, you know, one had a finance background and the other one was a management consultant. And then there was me who was mostly a, you know, games publisher uh, and social media um, guy. Um, and so the, the powwows, the, the conversations we would have and argue, of course, argue not in a, in a negative way, but argue more like a, you know, ancient Greece, Socratic way where we would ultimately like try to see which of our opinions would bend and figure out what are the best solutions. And, and one of our co-founders was, was actually representative of the local um, Emirati community of Dubai, which, is, which was super um, important. Um, to have her voice. But um, the education process, because I didn't have experience before that, um, I didn't really have much to, to draw from it, um, you know, in terms of how to relate to issues with, with market adoption or how to issue with technical issues. I, everything was brand new. Um, but those conversations and, deal, and being able to draw from the collective wisdom of, of, of my co-founders is really what, what led me to you know, finding solutions more or less all the way to um, not just dropping the ball com completely for this platform, but actually finding a home for it to at least see what, what the Community Development Authority of Dubai could do with it. Um, and, I, and I think, I think if I was to speak to a first-time founder, I would say you don't need um, um, anything special to begin with in terms of education. It really just the will to... Uh, break things into small components and just do the very, very next step. Sometimes you don't need, uh, especially as a first-time founder, you don't need to think too 
big, big on the, on the landscape, because at least from my experience, the landscape constantly um, changes under my feet, which is partly a, partly an issue of me always choosing um, pretty, pretty difficult uh, landscapes to begin with. But um, I would suppose that learning as you go is, is one of the, the tenants that I, I go by at least. I think that's really good advice. You know, um, I think two takeaways from there. Uh, one was the, the fact that your team had complementary skills to you and two, you guys weren't afraid to, to test things and experiment with things, even though it was uh, unknown or uncharted territories for you. Uh, but overcoming that fear, breaking through that fear uh, seems like the essence of what you're trying to convey here. Uh, which I think is important. Now, that lesson or those collections of lessons from 2010 in trying to take that time bank solution to market in Dubai to your current um, startup, talk to us about the problem that you're trying to solve with Virtual Leap and how that came about. Um, so as I kind of, uh, I'm a Vancouverite um, originally, but I, I lived quite a a while out in the Middle East. And then with my wife, we moved um, to Europe. And with Europe, I had um, decided to move into a space that I had been watching very closely, and that's the VR and AR sector. Um, at the exact same time, which is about 2015, I also began writing quite regularly for blogs like VentureBeat and, and TechCrunch and covering what exactly was happening in the spatial uh, computing industry. So uh, researching all aspects of the industry, uh, running um, some hackathons, online hackathons and participation with Google and Mozilla and, and Oculus, I became more and more entrenched in you know, the whole space. I lived and breathed uh, VR and AR, as I, of course, do even more now. But um, from the vantage of doing hackathons, from the vantage of being um, a, a writer that was researching the space, I was able to spot um, an opportunity, which was first and foremost uh, one that um, connected to my background as a market researcher. I found that with VR and AR, a lot of um, what was missing was best practices native to the industry. You know, you have this brand new kind of sector that has an additional dimension, literally, than, than traditional digital um, markets and, and in industries. And so it needs new kind of native metrics and native models that um, are inherently designed for the, the new paradigm. Um, for example, how do you do advertising models in VR and AR? Do you just copy and paste what's, what's happening in banner advertising and take that to um, uh, an industry that has an additional dimension of freedom? Um, in experience and, and, and user design, I, I found that to be not the right solution. And I found whenever people did do copy and pasting, they, uh, they created an awkward mismatch. Um, and so our first uh, foray into the sector was uh, to solve that. We developed um, an algorithm called Gaze at Ratio, which was all about um, detecting and measuring how much attention uh, users paid to particular objects. And we hope that that would be able to drive the... Um, product placement model in the VR and AR industry, uh, sort of um, a seamless form of advertising that we believed would keep the integrity of the content intact uh, the whole way through and make advertisers money and make everyone happy, but not, not disrupt the user experience. Um, we went to an accelerator in Silicon Valley, Boost VC. We refined the algorithm. 
Um, but once we received um, some money from a family office in New York, we, we uh, gently uh, pivoted into um, not just algorithms that took into account your attention levels in relation to objects, but actually it turned the whole thing around and started looking at what is the human condition now in a VR and AR setting? Because we found out and discovered that, you know, these devices, VR and AR alike, they, they capture a whole new breed of metrics that have never been able to be captured before, which are essentially body language. Body language can be um, tracked. And by body language, I mean the autonomic nervous system, subliminal and unconscious movements and gestures um, that we are typically unconscious of personally, but that these devices are so you know, well-designed and listening to us that they can actually, you know, we can actually create native metrics that allow us to translate um, biometrics um, into um, emotions. We can know whether someone is, is um, agitated, uh, nervous, or uncomfortable in some shape or form, or perhaps even bored out of their minds, which is something that from a digital standpoint has never been um, a layer, uh, the depth of you know analytics that has ever been possible to capture. And then the, you know the, the you know as we were developing this technology, we realized that um, uh, finding actually uh, customers and clients for it it was quite difficult because um, you know you're you're treading into blue ocean, you're treading into mm-hmm. a market that doesn't really exist, and so you're trying to invent needs, and that's really an awkward place to be as an entrepreneur. You're really in a danger zone when you're not actually addressing a real real market need. And so we started going, okay, we have this IP that we've developed after a year of R&D. Now, what can we do with it personally ourselves and take, you know, bring ourselves back into the driver's seat? And so we decided to move and bundle in all of our IP and become uh, the very first brain training app um, in VR. So it's so more or less taking the, the model of uh, brain training apps like Lumosity that has 85 million members around the world and, and, it's, and a variety of its competitors like Peak and, and Elevate and Brain HQ, um, but, but take them and, and take, the, uh, take brain training to the next level thanks to um, what VR and AR devices have opened up. Um, it's a it's a really exciting space that we've actually just pivoted into in the last couple of months. In fact, I debuted the pivot last week in New York at the Games for Change Festival, um, and we've really we we're really gearing now for a beta launch this September. That's amazing. I mean, you know, to go from uh, such a specific technology and, and identifying that gap in terms of analytics in the VR AR space and evolving the tracking to now, um, you know, finding that cross section for brain training, it seems like you're really onto something. Um, Amir, how did you validate this with the marketplace before you guys decide to make the pivots? And I, I know you mentioned um, you're getting into beta release, but who were some of your early testers when you guys decide to go this route? Well, I mean, um, the, but the good thing about switching to brain training is that um, first and foremost, it is a, a technology that has been um, made accessible um, in the case of Lumosity through, through 2D screen-based, you know, tablets and smartphones. Yep. But um, it's been made accessible, particularly for the growing um, needs of the aging population. Mm-hmm. So, you know, fending off, uh, you know, 
cognitive challenges like dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, you know, it is a social impact play um, that is based on a real need in the market and, and is used in a variety of settings for that uh, target market. So in, in the sense of clinics or research institutes specifically for um, the treatment and research of, of, of conditions like Alzheimer's. Um, mm-hmm. So there are plenty and, and abundant um, um, areas where uh, experimental technology is already being applied for that sector. Um, the only thing that's changed when Lumosity appeared was, uh, you know, we realized that there's a whole other general population of people who are super keen to um, not just be fit um, in terms of their body, but be fit in terms of their brains. And so that now there's this huge trend and growing popularity of, of, of uh, people like myself uh, who want to always stay sharp and, and, and develop ourselves to our maximum p- potential. Um, so, so when it comes to testing it, I think, um, we're basically just following the same gravy train that, that the 2d apps have, have emerged from We're we're mm-hmm. in fact an extension of them. And the real, the real thing that we're adding value to is that, um, you know, in recent years, uh, apps like Lumosity, um, have been criticized for, for actually not being able to do what they purvey, they, they can do, convey that they can do in their marketing yeah. spiel, for example. They, they're criticized for poor transferability where you mm-hmm. might get better and better in a particular game, like let's say a game yeah. that's testing your flexibility or speed um, prowess, but, but it actually doesn't transfer well to any other uh, activities in your daily life. So it's just isolated and concentrated to that particular game. You get better and better at that game, but it doesn't actually change your your state whatsoever. And what we found, at least with our cognitive scientists and the neuroscientists that we interview, is that that has always been doomed to be the case because the the scientific experiments that these games are, are designed based on were never designed for a 2D app. They were designed in the real world to treat people in the real world. And they, when you translate that three-dimensional kind of scientific experiment into a 2D app, you lose a lot in the translation. Um, and, the, and, the, and the reason for that is that the bleeding edge of neuroscience all points to the fact that cognition is inherently embodied um, and that you cannot remove uh, the autonomic nervous system and our sense of balance and our sense of movement and perception from um, a, a cognitive learning experience or environment. Um, and if you want to make that into a digital experience, the only way to transfer it and translate it is from the real world to VR and to AR, which are, at the end of the day, um, imitations in, in some shape or form of the real world. That's, a, that's an interesting evolution in terms of you know, uh, taking from what's been working and, and evolving it with the additional layers of uh, data points that you guys are getting. I'm, I'd, I'd be curious, you know, in six to 12 months from now, looking at uh, micropilots with hospitals or different institute, medical institutions that are, you know, focused on dementia or, you know, um, early onsets of Alzheimer's and them testing your technology uh, and doing you know, different A-B tests or focus groups just to see the efficacy of the the solution to counteract some of the criticisms that, you know, your 2D-type competitors have received. Um, another area that I, you know, as you were explaining this, comes to mind is um, 
kids with autism or ADD, ADHD, or the hybrid of the two, that could be another interesting area as well. I'm sure you know you, you guys will keep us abreast of your the evolution of your research. Absolutely. I mean, now, the thing Amir, is, um, no, sorry, I was just going to say, like, you know, it's it's a really like big big um, territory as well. I think kids' researches and kids' application is a really interesting area too. There's a lot of new um, uh, innovations, particularly uh, targeted for dyslexia and ADHD. Um, um, and I think one of the best ways to do it is, like you said, you know, start general and then start to work down into the the various clusters that you can kind of target. Absolutely. Now, as you've gone through this process, it seems like the breadth of your team um, has become fairly talented and technical. How did you realize you had the right team for this particular startup? And as you evolved, I think you mentioned, you know, interviewing neuroscientists and cognitive scientists. Tell us about the pathway from, obviously, you know, you identified an opportunity and a problem within this space. But how did you realize you had the right team? And as your solution evolved, as you received the the initial seed funding from that family office in New York, um, tell us about how you realized who to hire next and what the gaps were within the team and, and you know, where you guys are today and, and potentially who, who your next hire would be. <laughs> yeah. You know, because um, I, I showed you, I, I basically can, you know, describe two, maybe two, two and a half pivots you know, within, within yeah. a two year spell. And um, in the beginning, there was no need for neuroscientists until we discovered the, the, the innovation opportunity in terms of being able to um, track body language and make it into a mathematical formula that allows us to actually, to some degree of certainty, understand if someone's, what their mo- emotional state is. That you know, discovery led us to the need to hire people with that specialty of, of a neuroscience background. And as a neuroscientist background element of our team, you know, began to develop and, and research how to, how to invent, you know, these, these types of what we were calling neurometrics, um, you know, it, 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 they took us as far as we could go until we realized, again, to pivot into, um, into a specific application of, of brain training. Now you need people of an of a even different specialty. And so now we started hiring cognitive scientists. And we have two cognitive scientists now based out of our Berlin um, space at the Deutsche Telekom's um, tech incubator there. Um, it's a 5G-enabled mm-hmm. workspace. And so we have them, you know, working on that. And then we had to actually... Uh, part ways with the previous neuroscientists who didn't have the the gaming background, the serious gaming background. Um, and then that now is where we're expanding into the brain training kind of space and, and, and really going, you know, putting, doubling down more or less on the investment and, and, and preparing to launch the product. Um, now we're seeing that we need to have all sorts of um, more, um, you know, before these would have been luxurious roles that we didn't, we didn't need to necessarily include, but now they're becoming quite essential. We need a second game developer. We need a second 3D artist. We need a, um, you know, we, we need a person who is finally non-technical because from at this stage, I'm the only non-technical member of, uh, of our 10, 10 person team. Um, but now there's, now there's, um, a scenario where once we launch and it really comes down to what are the skill sets in terms of actual, uh, market rollout. So really, again, I think it comes back down to my, the earlier statement, which is a lot of, 
a lot of the things that are coming is every next step um, reveals itself only only as you approach it. Um, and, and it's not so much uh, that that's the case for all startups. I think it's, again, because I'm picking a startup in a, in a, land, in a particular market like VR, which is still very much in cowboy country. And so there are a lot of the rules that do exist in, in if you were launching a 2D app, for instance, in, in a very, very mature app store model, um, it, you, would have, you would have the need to be much more strategic from day one, and you would have a lot more precedence and historical case studies of other startups that you could kind of draw upon and, and, and use. Um, whereas for me and for our team, we really are um, in very much in frontier sector stuff. Yeah, it seems like you guys are pioneering the the AR VR stage, which is uh, exciting. And then you know, with that, with the higher level of excitement and disrupting technology in a new space, uh, it comes with its own uh, set of risks. Uh, which leads me to my next question: You know, from your perspective, being a serial entrepreneur, you know, how, how have you been able to kind of evaluate risk and and know when to make specific decisions and and use key metrics within the startup to kind of qualify the next step or the next follow-on decision um, to be able to get to the next stage yeah you know it, it's that it's probably um you know we we've myself and my co-founder hossein jalali we've worked together for six years now <clears throat> and and he's the cto and i'm the ceo and he's he's um He's, he's complimented me in exactly every area that I'm weak, which is in terms of the, the you know, I, I understand the front end elements of, of the business. And I, I, I concern myself with things like acquisition, you know, and, and retention. Um, whereas a lot of the things in a technology company, and especially one that is a, in a frontier territory, uh, pioneering uh, a lot of best practices and models, um, where, for example, the UX um, best practices that someone as a product developer, for example, would be able to lean on um, for a t- 2D product. For a VR product, you really, really need to um, be able to be flexible with the metrics that you apply and you hold yourself accountable for because they are changing quite a bit where we are. Um, and luckily, Hossein is is quite flexible and, and creative in that sense because you would need to be very, very resourceful to stay ahead and, and not be disheartened when a lot of things go wrong as they inevitably will in a VR sector. Um, what we have primarily been focused on as an early stage startup is, is also the relationship we have with investors and their KPIs and how to evaluate us. It has actually been maybe not as it should be, but it has been and it proven to be one where we have been needing to, to bend to their um, response as well. So if there is um, um, VCs that are early stage and they have particular interest in us being focused in a particular way, we've had to actually bend in that direction more than maybe we would have if we were in a, in a non-frontier sector. Um, you know, the, the, I'm not sure how, how closely you're following the VR sector, but we, we just had our first hero device released, the Oculus Quest. Um, which was released in May 21st. And it is our first hero device because everyone is just raving about it. It is the first standalone device that offers premium high fidelity experiences. And um, Mm -hmm. before that, we were developed on a completely different headset. But once it released, we had to change everything. Everything got got thrown out the window. 
because this device was so, um, so much of a landmark and milestone for the industry. And so imagine all the things that we had to throw out the rule books um, just to be able to go towards a different device altogether. Um, another example, uh, um, a, a very large association of a retired persons, um, tens of millions of members worldwide uh, in, in, in North America, they came and they want to work with us. And now we're considering to, to because of their interest, have to change the distribution um, roadmap completely to uh, focus on WebXR, which would allow us to be accessible to users simply through their browsers instead of being um, um, available through the walled gardens, which was our originally our approach. So you can see like, it's just, uh, it's, it really is like a very, it's like almost like a bloodbath um, when you are in the VR and AR sector with so many of the, the, you know, the norms can just change so radically and so quickly. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, <clears throat> I guess that's, you know, that's critical for realizing early, you know, which direction not to go and which direction to go. Sometimes in situations like this, you don't necessarily have a choice. It's kind of like Leap as well as another um, technology that's been kind of closed off to the VR world um, until recently. Um, Amir, tell us, you know, in your opinion, what is critical to get right um, early in order to avoid wasting time or money when you're building out a, a, a project like this? No, I think, uh, I think I'm a strong believer in design thinking um, as a methodology. And, and design thinking, you know, it has, has a real broad toolkit um, available to it. Um, but, but a lot of, a lot of the, the methodology relates to um, really stepping into a fictional character that embodies the type of um, ideal customer that you would be envisioning your product as, as um, servicing or helping or benefiting in some shape or form. Um, what, I do, I, what I do strongly recommend is when you and your team or you by yourself, but ideally in collaboration with other people with, with different minds to chip into the process, but you go to a whiteboard, um, you go into a room where you brainstorm and you try to envision and really to the minute details what that ideal customer would be and how and where in their in their daily experience, your product would come in, and why it would come in, and why would they, um, why would that, why would that product come in and sink into a particular habit that that becomes something that's uh, more or less used daily or regularly enough to make your product or your platform, or your business model um, viable and reliable. Um, something that's not going to simply um, uh, fetter out in, in a in a few months' time. Um, you know, we do a, a lot of cool things with design thinking met methodology where we really track from the moment that uh, the, the user wakes up to the moment that she goes to sleep and you find out really in that day, is this day of this person accurate? Is it realistic? And then how realistic is, is your product in, in fitting into their daily experience? Um, I think stepping into the shoes of a user from the very, very beginning as early as possible can save you a lot of time because there is a way of... Um, startups, they fall into a kind of spell of what they call the reality distortion field. And if you fall into that, you start getting carried away, developing a product and platform and, and adding all sorts of features that not necessarily have anything to do with what the market wants, but you getting carried away on, you know, drinking too much of the Kool-Aid yourself. I think that's, uh, <clears throat> that's a, a, a great, um, 
advice there, Amir. Um, I'm just thinking, you know, this 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 question's a bit tricky, but if it, you know, if you could imagine talking to your younger self and you were to write a letter, uh, what would the title of this letter be? Hmm. I did warn you to say it was going to be a bit tricky. Uh, I don't feel like, I don't want to get esoteric or Zen-like, although my younger self would love that. Um, <laughs> you know, like it, it, I, I just, I, I, you know, it, it, I, I don't want him to, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not giving you the title yet, but I'm trying to work with this with you here because you did do me with curveball. And I know this question, I've heard it being used before. I've just never applied to myself. And, you know, it's not that it's, uh, canned at all it's a it's a really good exercise but it, it, the thing about youth and younger ages and, and so on it's not that they can't achieve exactly what they want uh, despite uh, ha- um, less experience it's that yeah. um, I suppose my younger self uh, thought it knew much more than was even possible for him to know you know and and yeah. um, he took himself so much more seriously so I mean and, and that seriousness overtaking yourself seriously um, it can blind you from uh, the humbleness or humility or, or uh, the capacity to appreciate the finer details of, of small things that you just overlook when you're, you're younger and rushing, you know. And I, would, I, I suppose I would have a bunch of uh, options for that letter. But um, I, maybe I would say the title would be Take Yourself Out of the Equation. Mm. Very interesting. Um, to to close off in, in contrast to that or uh, to complement that perhaps what is uh, or where is something that you failed um, you know in the last let's say 10 years um, but as a result of that failure um, the lesson or the journey that you went through um and, and the key nuggets that you were able to take away or any advice that you were able to impart as a, as a result of having gone through that journey and have experiencing that failure. Maybe we can wrap up with that question. Uh, Hossein and I, we, um, about, I think four, <clears throat> no, five years ago, uh, we were uh, producing uh, a mobile strategy game based on uh, a 1,000-year-old poem by a Persian poet named Ferdowsi. Um, it was basically our our version of Hercules, based on the uh, our our version of Hercules is called Rostam. I think you know, Salar. And, yeah. and we we based this game on on this character, and it was a strategy game um, that we found a lot of value in, and we found um, all the elements and, and took care of all the ingredients that would be required to produce a game in terms of partnering with a development uh, an agency that we could. Could, that was reliable on the technical aspect, but we f- we found that finding investment for this project was extremely easy and 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 um, very very easy to find, which was surprising. Um, it was an angel investor that um, everything just seemed to go a little too smoothly, and and um, we were happy with that. And 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 um, it was only after about uh, a, a year into development and, and getting ready to launch the product that we realized. Um, uh, the the angel investor was um, quite fraudulent with some of the commitments that that that, that he had agreed on, 
um, you know, so wholeheartedly in the beginning. And what I won't get into the details of it, um, but but the point is that there were, in fact, a lot of small clues and hints that it was too good to be true the whole way through. But that um, um, when things are going really, really well, um, it's maybe at least our human nature or some observations of ourselves that we were. Um, blind to all sorts of details in the landscape and in the journey. Um, and so I would, I would say the lesson learned for us was to always play things um, according to best practices, to be cautious, not into, in terms of paranoia, but to, be, mm-hmm. to do your due diligence in, in, in all shapes and forms and in all ways possible so that you know very, very well um, that the road you're going on is, is a secure one. Amir, thank you so much for for that and for joining us today on the Got Prepared podcast. And we look forward to following your success and looking at uh, the evolution of Virtual Leap over the years. Thank you so much for having me on board.